Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. This is the Brickflix Fryfest preview series 2019. The Brickflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it, and you're done, and it'll be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast, Frightfest 2019 preview series. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Brett Pierce. Hello, Brett. Hey, Stuart. How's it going? Going very well. Going very well indeed. Now, we've come to talk about your film, The Wretched, which is playing at Frightfest in the Bank Holiday Weekend, as many other films are. And without further ado, do you want to give the and I, and I will put links in the show notes to, for details for tickets and times and stuff. Um, but do you want to tell people a brief synopsis as to what the wretched is all about, so they might be tempted to click that link and look for your film? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the wretched is a story about a boy who moves in with his dad for the summer, and he's having a. They're having family issues. The family's uh, breaking apart. There's like an imminent divorce, and he becomes convinced that the women, uh, the woman next door, is making her children disappear. So it's a very uh, fright night, like summer adventure kind of creature feature. <laughs> cool. My my kind of thing. I grew up on those. <laughs> Good man. Well, we'll get more yeah. into that. In, we'll get more into that in a moment. But it's yeah. 20 years of fright fest, and I'm asking all guests to give me a standout memory of when they were 20. So what for you uh, sticks out from when you were 20? What were you doing when you were daft and young? 
When I was 20, I think actually roughly right about this time, mm-hmm. I was shooting a really terrible like $2,000 horror movie with five of my friends in the okay. woods. <laughs> yeah, and we were uh, we shot it in three days Yeah, uh, in the woods in Michigan. Mm-hmm. It was like a god-awful ripoff of Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. And it, it was literally just – it was like a jam session. It was like film school. And, like, you know, I'd be shooting with two actors in one location, and my friend would be on, like, the other side of the property. And I'd be like – I'd finish shooting my couple of shots, and then I'd send the actors to that side of the property and steal his two actors and shoot a couple of shots. Wow. So we were uh, – yeah, we were, we, we were shooting this, like, really uh, – Really terrible horror ripoff film with a uh, you know all the guys from my uh, my like film class in high school. So I mean I was out of high school, but the guys I came out of high school with. What was what was the name of that film you were making? It was called Dead Undead. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I think the original title was like The Beast of a Thousand Corpses or no no that's or House of Thousand Corpses. The Beast of a Thousand Something or something like that. it was a really overdone title. But we had just – we were all friends, and we just kind of made all these short films, and we would, like, show them at the local movie theater, and we just decided, like, let's all make, like, a little horror movie. So we – I mean, I think the script was written in, like, two weeks or something. Like, it wasn't by me, by a friend of ours named Matt. Yeah. And then we uh, we just kind of went out and shot it and then cut it and then showed it at the local movie theater. And then, crazy enough, we uh, – I think that year we we paid for all ourselves to go to Sundance and we rented like a little cabin or a little room like off a thing. And we just like passed out flyers trying to get people to come watch it. And we sold it to a German distributor for, I think, like $20,000. So it was – yeah, it was a unique experience. It's a movie I don't want anyone to ever find or watch, but it's too bad I've talked about it now. But – it was, uh, yeah, it, it was fun. It was, it was, you know, high school, post high, high school times. So <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, no, that's a fantastic mm-hmm. memory from being twenty. Mm-hmm. Now, um, yeah. Now, uh, you, 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 and your uh, your brother, um, Drew, you co-wrote and you co-directed this film. So, um, what? Let's start at the beginning of the process. Then, what for you was the spark? that led to uh, The Wretched being a movie? Where, where was this idea formulated and how, and how did you two work together to shape it? I mean, I think the spark was, for me, I was really anxious to make a witch story. And I think it kind of came from, I'm an avid comic book guy. Like, okay. I still go to the comic store every Wednesday and I buy tons of stuff. And I, I'm like a lifelong help. Boy fan. I own every Hellboy comic and spin-off comic okay. since the beginning of that. And there's just a lot of witch myths that have been worked into the mythology of Hellboy over time, and it's just kind of created my, my own obsession of it. So I started reading uh, a bunch of myths about different witches all around the world, just because I was like, I want to make a witch movie, because I feel like there's not, or there hasn't been in a while, a very definitive kind of creature witch movie. Mm. So I just read as many myths as I possibly could and came across one of this, uh, which in the UK actually called Black Annie. Right. And I just really, I, I dug the the visual description of her, a lot of the artwork online I'd seen of her. Um, and I just liked the idea of this creepy witch that lives in a tree, <laughs> you know, and eats children. Yeah. So it kind of started just with that. 
Um, and then I just started talking to Drew about it and he just had some other ideas that he was kind of, he wanted to make something. He's always been obsessed with like films where something can kind of jump from body to body or possession. He loves, uh, I think it's fallen that, uh, that Denzel Washington movie. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing and, and just anything where it's like somebody's pretending to be who they're not. Mm. It's just something he finds incredibly creepy. And I think we just kind of said like, well, Hey, I got this witch thing in this mythology that I really like in this visual look. And he was like, I have this like, body possession story kind of thing I want to do. It's like, and we were like, can we mesh these together? <laughs> you know, and wow. that's kind of where it started. So, yeah. So how, how do you and your brother work when you, so you've got, you've got the conversation about, about ideas. So that's, that, that can happen just yeah. over coffee. But when, yeah. when you've, when you move into the office, as it were, and start putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard, how, yeah. how, how do you two work together then to meld those two ideas to grow it into a, you know, a 90 page screenplay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it usually starts with us. We just buy a couple of notepads of paper and mm. we, over the course of like two weeks, we just talk about the story and ideas and things we're excited about. And we kind of do, we kind of try and fail a billion times. We try to plot out the whole movie and we always start like at the beginning and we just write like each beat of the story and we work till the end. Yeah. And lots of times we'll get like, you know, into the second act and it just stalls. And the next day we start over, we just kind of do it over again and we keep going, keep going. And as soon as we kind of get pretty close to getting to the ending or where we kind of keep seeing a lot of the same story beats repeating in both of our notes, then we'll spend like a week in a room just with, you know, post-it notes and postcards and we'll line up first act, second act, third act, and we'll shuffle stuff around. We'll ditch ideas and we'll kind of narrow it down to like the the structure that we feel is working. Yeah, yeah. So then then we kind of you know then we got a board to look at that kind of represents the movie. And then I just kind of we used to try to like write the first draft together. Yeah. And that never ever worked just because you're kind of tugging one direction and the other way too often. And we found ourselves uh, only making it like through the first act and then starting over too much. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we just kind of decided on I, – I was like, let me just write a first draft, our vomit draft. Just get it out. It doesn't yeah. have to be great. It will be loosely based on our structure we built. Sometimes you go off it. It just happens with a first draft. And then we'll have something to work with. Mm. And that, wor that works so much better. So we uh, now it works that we just plot. I do a vomit draft. That vomit draft is – Usually just okay, but it's got like maybe some nuggets in there we really like, some good ideas, or there's some like, you know, there's some scenes that we're just really excited about. Um, and then we really do the hard work when we start on the second draft because, we, you know, we have this big draft of this script that's not very good that we can easily critique and kind of figure out why it's not working and keep the stuff that is. So then we, uh, with after that, it's just kind of a trade off. We just kind of go through it again, replot anything we need to replot that isn't working. And then we just kind of go like, well, okay, man, I'm going to take a shot at the opening scene. I take a shot. And then Drew rewrites it. And then Drew's like, well, I, I got a good idea for the second scene. I know we talked about it. He'll write it and then he'll pass it back to me and I'll rewrite it a little bit and fix it up. And that's how we kind of get through our second draft. And our second drafts are not that they're perfect, but they usually structurally are pretty close to kind of what we're going to hit. And then after that, it's all sweetening. And I mean, we do a lot of sweetening. I mean, we spend, I mean, I probably, we both rewrite till pretty much the day we shoot just because you just, you know, you realize things, but you're also, when you're doing indie films, you're having to, um, you know, you're having to like 
make your ideas more concise. Sometimes the producers are like, we can't afford to do this kind of in a late moment and you have to adjust, you know? So it's, mm. uh, it's ever evolving. I just, I, I never, I, I don't like to surprise actors with like brand new pages and it's not usually like that severe, but you're always adjusting it right until you shoot. So like a script is just a blueprint. And you just want to, you just want a really good blueprint before you start doing pre-production and doing everything. So there's no, you know, confusion. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an important point though, that because I think, cause it's, the, yeah. it's one of the big, cause of course writing is writing, but yeah, you, with, with, when somebody's writing a novel, they're in control of that. All right. The editor gives them notes and stuff, but ostensibly you, you, when your novel's finished, it's finished. Whereas a screenplay, like you say, doesn't have that luxury of ever being finished. I mean, I suppose the only finished screenplays are those that have been re-edited after a film is made and then published. Yeah, yeah. See, I I was actually really confused the other day because a festival, uh, Festival La Tranche, that we're going to after Fright Fest, yeah. wanted our final like shooting script so they could do the translation. Mm. And I was like, I, I can't give you that because the last draft before we shot does not represent the movie. <laughs> you oh, know? wow. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you're not going to be able to translate the dialogue from this because we changed a ton of it and things have been moved around, you know? So I was yeah. like, that's not going to help you. <laughs> yeah. So now you, you mentioned about Creature, about creature um, in, in, your, in your synopsis at the beginning. So, yeah. So in terms of what was on the page describing a creature and then what gets made for screen to be that creature... How how was the evolution of that from sort of concept to what we get to see when the film rolls? Uh, it was pretty close. I mean, we did when we were initial initially trying to find the investment for the movie. Mm -hmm. My brother and I made a lookbook with um, you know a bunch of pictures that we had pulled from online that like represent characters and stuff too yeah. and mood. But Drew is also a, a very talented fine artist and storyboardist, the storyboard artist out here in LA. Right. So he did some original artwork of designs of our witch, the wretch. That's, um, a, that's a handy so, resource to have in your collaboration. Oh, it's, it's huge. It's, <laughs> it's the, I, I have the best collaborative partner in the world because he has a ton of skills that I do not. My, my, my storyboards are like stick figures and mm. he's really, really kind. And he always says, it's fine. It just has to communicate like where somebody's standing and what's in the background. It doesn't mm. matter. That's just like a circle with lines drawn off of it. He's like, that's all you need. But then I look at his storyboards and they're like really beautifully rendered. And I'm just like, well, don't look at my storyboards. But <laughs> so what, so what did he come up yeah. with in his, in his sort of imagining yeah. of what this, this creature was going to look like? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that inspiration came from, which is like black Annie and Jenny Greenfingers and like hag-like creatures, you know, from a lot of different myths. Mm. Um, we drew from a lot of that, but Drew's drawings ended up being very similar to what we eventually landed on. Mm. So, and that process was cool too, because we, we hired a really amazing effects team. This guy, Eric Porn, he has a company called Bitemares. Yeah. And he would, he's an amazing sculptor. And he did like a... 3d sculpture of the creature and we would you know he would send it to us and then drew would just pull out a cintiq and i'd stand over his shoulder and he'd draw over the sculpture kind of saying no skinny up the waist here a little bit less of a nose all this other stuff and that was the process of leading wow. up to the shoot like 
Yeah, it was really cool. Like then he'd actually do a physical like clay sculpture of the face after he'd you know molded the the actress's face for the creature, hmm. and he, he would just send us the sculpture like a picture of it. We'd throw it into into Drew's computer, draw over it, narrow things out, make it a blah, and send it back, and he'd re-sculpt it. And so we eventually, you know, it ended up being a mix of Drew's design and Eric's sculpture. But it was it, it was just like a it was a wonderfully fluid process. It was so rewarding <laughs> in a weird way. It was like mm. creatively, it was it was just like we got to kind of pinpoint exactly what we wanted and get there which you know. yeah that's amazing to hear yeah. it kind of be yeah. it be a real iterative process between maker and the person with the vision because obviously it's it's one of the hardest things to communicate isn't it is what you can see in your head <laughs> yeah yeah kind of the the thing one of the things drew and i've realized with making films is the best thing you can do is ahead of time be very specific with people like makeup effects and production design because it's, you know, it, it's happened to all of us that make movies as you show up on the day on set and something doesn't really look the way you thought in your mind or had hoped. Mm. And I don't necessarily, I don't think that's the fault of the teams. Usually it's usually on us not spending enough time communicating exactly what we wanted. Right. So in that case, that's something we learned to, you know, do a lot on the wretched. We were just very much in contact with production design, special effects, costuming, everybody, just because, you know, that, that's, that, that saves you time. It gets you more time to spend more time, like shooting the stuff you want instead of fixing a problem on the day when you're shooting. And then you're just, you know, you're, you're having to nix a dolly shot because, you know, you're spending time fixing a problem instead of shooting, you know? <laughs> now, if you're doing all, all this, all this sort of practical hands-on work with, you know, models of people's face, heads and stuff. And obviously looking at the trailer, it's, it's clear, it, 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 clear to, it seems clear to me, there's, um, what, we're, what we're dealing with in your film is very practical effects. Um, yeah. So for you, um, and it's obviously, it's interesting in your kind of, in your, the film that you made in, when you were younger, um, you talked about aping Evil Dead, and obviously Evil Dead's sort of like, I guess the, the kind of one of the, the beacons of practical effects, isn't it? In a sense, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, for you as a filmmaker, um, what what's what's the joy of dealing with with the practical as as opposed to the digital? It just it, it looks better. I mean, I can I always say this: we can throw real light on it, you know, and, and I don't have to mimic light in CG that looks fake and makes things feel like it's sitting on top of frame. Um, I don't have any problems with CG actually like it quite a bit for the right things. Mm. It's just when it comes to horror films and you're trying to get people to buy into that, this supernatural element is in the real world with you. And that's why it's scary. Yeah. That for me, practical effects is where you have to start and you have to keep it there as much as possible to make it work for an audience. Mm. Um, I just, and also it's fun. It's, 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 you know, it forces you to plan out your shots very thoroughly because effects guys, always complain about this and they hate it is that they'll design something and they'll be told like, Hey, we're only going to see this from overhead. And then on the day, the director will decide, well, no, I want to see it from the bottom and from the bottom, it looks terrible. They didn't prep it to look good from that angle. So you just, it's one of those things where you just have to be specific with them. And if you can get your team to make it look good from the angle you want and you get what you want, it looks so much better. And you get that, you know, those three, four seconds of like, 
magic mm. <laughs> where everybody goes like, and everybody watches something like, how did you do that? And I'm like, we just made it. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. And it, that's why it looks good because it's there, you know, it, it, and the actors can respond to it. You know, they can go like, oh my God, that's disgusting or that's amazing. You know, it's, that's, that, that's my love. But I mean, it comes from, my dad was a, like a, uh, an effects guy um, mm. did a lot of stop motion and camera stuff. He was actually the he was the the photograph effects artist on the original Evil Dead. Wow. So, okay. So genuine, yeah, yeah. Proper, proper legacy going on there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just used to, you know, our basement was like his playground. He would just make his own mini movies down there. That's also where they did a lot of the effects work for Evil Dead. Um, and I was just infatuated with it because my dad, in my mind, in Drew's mind, is he was just making magic. Down mm. in the basement. I mean, he was, he was making little stop motion miniature monsters fight, and he was, you know, he, he was doing the the final sequence of Evil Dead with the big meltdown, and and it just, I, I just like tangible things, you know, and, and I just feel like it scares me more when I feel like I can, like, you know, if I was there, I could grab what's there, you know. <laughs> what's what? What in a sense is what's yeah. the continuity challenge when you're dealing with a, a sort of real creature in camera? As opposed to obviously um, a person. I mean, the hardest part, it, it's not, I mean, there's the continuity element of you just have to have a great effects team that is consistently reproducing the same look mm. over yeah. and over again, which is always a little tricky. Um, but, you know, thanks to Eric and his team, we were, we never really had a problem with that. But oh, I mean, yeah. the, I think the hardest part is just that sometimes, one of the weirdest things to kind of get over is you'll see, the creature and she'll be standing in front of you and she looks amazing. And you're kind of like, man, I really want to shoot this a lot because it looks really fantastic. But then you're also like, you know, if I show it too much, it's uh, kind of loses its impact. So I need to just like show it as little as possible, but in the most impactful ways that yeah, I can show it. Yeah. 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 So I think that was the hardest part was kind of because you realize how much work it's like, this is in the back of your mind. Like, Oh my God, we've been designing this thing and Eric spent weeks getting it ready and, and like everybody's excited about it. We should shoot it a lot. But the, and the hard part is kind of saying like, yeah, just shoot the stuff you planned. If you have a couple extra cool new ideas that just look amazing, go for it, but don't overdo it. Don't show it too much. Make it so that there's parts of it that kind of go into the shadows so that your imagination kind of fills in the gaps. Because I always, I always remember seeing uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street as a kid mm. at my uh, – this girl down the street, she was having a – I went over there because her older sister was having a birthday party and a sleepover with like 12 girls. So I was a little kid all excited because I was going to go sleep over 12 girls. <laughs> but, Blimey, all right. But, so we're, yeah, 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 yeah. So we're, we're watching Nightmare on Elm Street and I was terrified and I watched the whole thing. And my memory of what Freddy looked like, looked like in, in, in every scene was kind of so terrifying. But when I watched the movie later, I had kind of realized, like, wow, we don't really see his face too well. And they, they spent a lot of time kind of hiding him and keeping him in shadow. So it was really the parts and pieces that added up to him being creepy, which was not seeing part of him, just seeing the glove or just seeing an angle of his face where there was hints of the burns on his face, but it wasn't super clear and you mm. couldn't completely see it. So I've always – and Drew, the same way, we've always kind of – gone into when we do effects or any kind of creature thing is that I want to give all the hints of what it looks like and I want you to fill in the rest because I think your imagination is going to be even better than anything you like you know we can accomplish on camera indeed indeed I always think of yeah. um, I always think of 
whenever whenever anyone tells me that they think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a gore fest, and I like always love to tell them, you don't see a drop of blood apart from in the barbecue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and same thing, Halloween. There's mm. no blood in mm. that movie. And like, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed the new one. It was fun, but I was just like, you know what? Hey, I was I was more scared of the original one. And uh, Michael Myers doesn't, you know smash somebody's uh, head with his big old boot and <laughs> scatter across camera. He just stabs people and stalks them. That scared the crap out of me. <laughs> now, given, given, given you mentioned your dad, um, yeah. I just, it'd be interesting to know, once, once obviously he could see that his sons were going to, you know, follow the, the, the sort of family tradition into making films. Uh, can you, can you recall any, given, given what he was working on and what you're now doing, can you recall any kind of, nugget of advice that he gave you about what you were trying to do that you still sort of stick with, that is still important to your filmmaking process? I think um, it wasn't like a specific piece of advice. It mm. was more kind of like an attitude about making films. Go on. Is the best thing about my dad is he's like, he's incredibly like optimistic. And he's kind of like, if he puts his mind to something, he just gets it done. Mm -hmm. And he had that mentality about making films and working on Evil Dead. And even all, all those guys, Sam and Bruce and all those guys, they had the same mentality too. I mean, they were really young kids, but they just, it instilled in us that like, hey, they made this, you know, they finished making this movie in our basement that like, all you need to do is just get people together and go make it. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you to go make it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so yeah, it was yeah, kind yeah. of, and I've always kind of felt that way. Um, since then, like, cause you know, we live in Los Angeles and Drew and I, you know, we, we tried to get the wretched made with some studios and production companies. And, you know, there was a couple times where things got a little close and it just didn't work out, but I never got like disenchanted with pushing the movie because I would, in the back of my mind, I always think like, well, even if this studio or this production company is not going to make it, we're going to make it, we're going to figure it out. Like we'll go find the financing and we'll put the team together. And I, I just... I think that's the best mentality to have just because it, it's, you know, that's the only way you finish something is if you're kind of, you know, the only way you make a film is if you're too naive to uh, not look at the bigger picture and realize how many blockades are in the way. <laughs> no, so, no, no. I think, I yeah, think, I think yeah. it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. That, 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 yeah. that some of the, some parts of what, what we're doing as filmmakers is, is we have to delude ourselves in a kind of healthy way. Yeah. Um, to get to get to the end game, because if we don't, logic would tell us go and be an accountant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. If I if I went back in time before making the wretched, I would just be like, oh my god, we're going to have to do all those things, and there's going to be all these false starts where we almost made it with somebody, and then it didn't happen. And then we almost had the money and then it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would be like, this doesn't make any sense to do this, you know? <laughs> no, I was, I was reading uh, the memoir of um, Bruce, oh God, his surname's escaped me now, um, who, who wrote Jacob's Ladder. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he taught, and he said, he, there's a, a applause of published a, 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 a version of the screenplay and in the back there's a hundred page memoir of writing the screenplay. And he talks about, um, the eleven-year period it took to get that film made, and you yeah. go, you go, that needs something more than just simply belief to get yeah. to carry on, yeah. to still be <laughs> to still be hanging on eleven years on, going, no, this yeah. is what I should, this is what we should make. 
And, yeah. And yeah, no, I think it's, it's an uh, important part. It's blind stupidity and love and passion. <laughs> now, when you when you were looking at what was on the page and what you were going to have to shoot, I mean, obviously, without giving too many kind of spoilery things, what yeah. what for you were some of the biggest challenges for you two as filmmakers trying to achieve it for this film that you're kind of like, I mean, obviously making the film is the big achievement. I, I, I'm not trying to overshadow that, but in yeah. terms of, you know, the, the small victories that add up to the big one, what were some of the small victories you really look back on and go, how the fuck did we do that? Um, I think the, I mean, the smaller victories that were like crazy was just the, these are all like kind of like the the typical problems they tell you to avoid when making a movie is we had kids, we had animals, and we had practical effects. <laughs> so the, holy, the holy the trinity, only, yeah. the holy trinity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and like I just – when I think back, I'm like why did I think – why did Drew and I think going into this that like that this script was easily doable with all of these <laughs> things in it? Yeah, because yeah. You just don't – you kind of like do this thing where you, you, you plan as much as you can. You look at the script and every time you hit like a big hurdle like, oh, well, there's there's a raccoon in this scene. You're just going, oh, all right, well, we'll figure it out. We'll find a raccoon, you know. <laughs> and then, then comes the night where you find the raccoon. You go to shoot it and, you know, the raccoon is just not doing at all what you need him to do. And you realize you've spent like two hours trying to get a raccoon to like walk across a five-foot area. <laughs> You know, it's like, those are the, and you get it eventually. You got it, and you're excited that you got it. But the 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 miracle in my mind is thinking that like we included all three of those things on this movie. We shouldn't have. We should have picked one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it still worked. Um, but there's just there's crazy challenges. Like we, I mean, we, we had um, kids. So basically, with kids, you have to have them offset by a certain time at night because mm. that's that's the legality of it here in the states of so course, yeah, in Britain. yeah 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 so um we had so many night shoots and we had so many night shoots that involved children so it was just like every time we were shooting at night with kids we would have to shoot the scenes completely out of order mm. and shoot the kids out first and then send them off so that we uh we got them out of there on time and to kind of have to like, cause it never makes sense to shoot things in an order because you just have to do it that way. You always want to organize it where it's a, the most efficient so you can shoot as much as possible. But like, you know, we, we, we just like every night was this challenge of like, okay, um, well call is when the sun goes down, which is pretty much like nine o'clock, nine thirty at night. These kids have to be gone by like 1045, <laughs> you know? So, wow. so let's, yeah. So it would be like this rush, 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 get the, three shots of the kids uh, done that we can. We'd have to eliminate like four of the shots we wanted with them because we just didn't have the time. Um, do those three shots communicate the idea enough? And then to have to kind of go into the scene with the adult actors after and block them so that the kids aren't visible and that they're reacting to nothing and, and all this other stuff. That that was like the, the every night miracle, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, obviously... Um... When when you've got the film shot, you know everyone brings yeah. a sigh of relief. You have a rap party, um, and then you and you and Drew and your editor. I mean, I'm, I'm saying your editor. Did you who, who did you edit it, or was it was it with an editor? Was we had Terry, an Terry editor Yates. named Terry, Terry Yates. Yates. Yeah, he edited our. He was our assistant editor on our first film. Mm. Um, but we sat in every day with him. 
So what I was going to ask you was, I was going to say, what I was going to ask you is then, so when you, you've obviously written it, you've shot it, so you've got a good idea of what it is, but then when you get in and you've got the assembly edit and then you start to move things around, what were some of your favourite discoveries about how you could elevate what you thought the wretched was and then what it became? I think my favourite thing was, is that we could, in a weird way, we could restructure the first act a lot. Like we could move, yeah, we could move things around. And there was some, you had to pay attention to, like, you had to make sure that you weren't uh, making things too confusing with costuming or anything like that. But yeah. there was, there was a lot of room in the first act to move things around and, and put things in a different place than we initially intended that create a different, like, audience expectation of a character or what mm. they know. Um, that was kind of really exciting. We also kind of learned going into it is that, like, there's a, as, as audiences that watch movies like you and I and stuff like that is that we've seen enough movies that some ideas and stories have been communicated so time, so many times that we're all a little preloaded when we see a movie. Like we know how some stories kind of pan out a little bit, especially in like the first act. So there were some elements that we actually, we probably cut the most we didn't use of stuff we shot from the first act because we kind of realized we're like, you know what? Audiences have seen scenes like this before in mm. other movies. So if I get rid of it, the assumption of what happened here is kind of in their mind anyways, because the next scene kind of communicates that. So we ditched a few things and all of a sudden we're like, wow, this is way better because if I have these scenes, it's kind of expected and it's kind of like covering old ground. And if I can skip it, that makes it feel more unique. And it also feels like we're jumping into the story a little faster and all the other stuff. It sounds so. like that confidence to not have to always explain what's happening in the film. Yeah. 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 I, I actually, Drew and I are very big fans of that. Like we want to show and not tell. Mm. I mean, no matter, no matter what you get stuck telling a little bit. Of course. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. What, what I mean is though, is that idea of, the the, the, the the transitions between moment to moment and that magic of cinema time where the yeah. audience gets to fill in what has happened, you know. We if, yeah. if somebody's if somebody's repeatedly going to the doctors, we don't need to show seventeen visits to the doctors, do we? We can exactly. to make us understand that's what's going on. Um yeah. and, and any kind of other sort of general ascendancy or descent in a character is easy to follow if we know what the trigger was. Um Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you just realize that audiences are even smarter than your screenplay when you go to edit because they, they when we did test screenings of the movie with mm. like friends and other filmmakers, they would just be like, hey, man, you, you don't need that scene. It's mm. if it goes, I still get it. And like, you know, sometimes Drew and I would be like, yeah, but if you, you cut that scene, I don't know if this part later in act three makes sense. And it always does. It's the, the audience is smart and can make some assumptions more than you think. I, I th- that's one of the biggest things I learned, I think, on this film more than anything else is that I, I can trust the audience to know that they, they know what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I, did a, yeah. Um, I did an exercise where I was looking at um, Texas Chainsaw on screen and a copy of a screenplay I'd got of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the film is a tight 83 minutes. The screenplay yeah. is 103 pages. Wow. And, and I would not have guessed it was that long. but <laughs> Well, well, because yeah. they cut out about 20 pages of unnecessary drama and kind of digging into who the characters are that's yeah. superfluous to, um, to where the film ends up going. So, for example, one of the, one of the things is uh, 
You know the whole, um, she's reading the, 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 the astrology stuff from the book. Yeah. There's a yeah. Van. She does everybody in the van. Oh, really? Which you don't <laughs> need. Once, she's, once yeah. she's done it once, we understand this is yeah, post-EP, yeah. Age of Aquarius, America, and they're yeah. also in the middle of dirt, dirt poor Texas. So it's like two, two competing cultures. We didn't need everybody's stars being read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, like you said, it's like you have a wide shot of a van in dirt poor Texas. You have kids inside the van dressed for summer. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like those two ideas right there probably communicated about ninety percent of what they needed to communicate. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Well, look, when you were when you were doing, yeah. your, I'm, I'm fascinated. I've now, sort of, sort of covered the making of it. Now, I'm interested in what you, what you, because witches is, is obviously not a new thing to to yeah. screen. But obviously, it has an enduring quality. I mean, a friend of mine, if you just if you just tell him there's a witch theme to it, he's going to read it or watch it. You know, yeah, there, yeah. there is an appeal. Um, and when you were doing that research and looking looking at all the stories from around the world, and, and I've done, I did, I was researching a what I thought was a Scandinavian phenomena. They call them hidden folk in in across Scandinavia, which is like little figures that you know, in unsurprisingly, in rural areas. That will. Yeah. If you don't feed them, they'll wreck your life. And if you, oh man, if you leave them, I, you, if you leave them, a bit you of should milk make that. Rest- I like that idea already, and that's a good title. <laughs> so. um, well, so so, yeah. but but what I found was the exact same story in South Africa. Just, oh really? They just called. Okay. They just called the the, the 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 sort of the mischievous character something else. So yeah. I just yeah. wondered what were, what were the patterns you were able to notice reading and you know consuming lots of sort of you know the 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 witch tales from around the world anything anything you noticed oh yeah it's it's very very consistent actually that's what's kind of crazy the witch is basically like almost in every culture there is essentially like what you can you know you you can call either a hag or a witch which is like this old creepy creepy creature slash woman Hmm. that steals children or is jealous of women's ability to have children or is, you know, you know, envious of how beautiful a woman can be and that they look disgusting and ugly Hmm. and that they kind of come into your house and wreck your house or steal your children or pretend to be you kind of types of, there's a lot of that like consistently. I mean, there's like through almost all the cultures, it's, it's like, honestly, it's the, um, it's the scary grandmother myth. It just kind of gets repeated through every culture, you know, it's the woman, it's the woman who lives out in the hills and you never see her and she's really disgusting looking. And when she comes into town, she scares all the children. Um, it, it's kind of everywhere. And, and you can kind of see like you can see where, you know, even in Russia, you can see where like characters like the Baba Yaga and stuff like that will get like co-opted by an adjoining country and they'll have a similar which that won't be exactly the same might have mm. a few different rules. Yeah, of course. You know, but we'll have a similar look always seems to be going after children and always seems to be like, you know, preying on them. So that, that's just something that's consistent. And we really wanted to, to kind of take advantage of the creature aspect of a witch, just because we, there's a lot of witch movies and it's either, and there's nothing wrong with these. I like these too, but I hadn't seen like a creature feature, witch thing in a while where it's, it's usually a woman who has died. Who's kind of like a ghost, but they'll just call her a witch. You know, so it's mm. like she kind of haunts people, but they're like, oh, she's a witch because 
she did, you know, rituals and stuff like that, which, yeah, that is a witch, but that's not really like a creature thing as much. And then, or it's like a, uh, you know, just, you know, women practicing like black magic kind of type thing, which I like stories like that too, but there wasn't really a whole lot of this, witch is from like the old world. Like it's, it's, it's been around for thousands of years and it's like a creature that, you know, still lives in current times. You know, mm. we were really excited about that idea because there are some witch films with that idea in it, but not too many recently and not a lot of that uh, occurring, you know? So that was what we got. I think that was just something that like, we just couldn't let go of and we had to, we had to like make it that type of film. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so almost yeah. like you, 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 you give this sort of witch character almost like a kind of demonic element, which is, Living through the yeah. age, living through the ages, as opposed to from the medieval time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like she's always been around, and, mm. and Drew and I, we even we only go into the mythology of her in the movie a little bit because it's that same thing. We like to kind of show and not tell. Yeah. But we've worked out like a fairly extensive mythology on how this creature has, you know, worked through the ages and other elements of her story that we just we I think we just built it out because we were excited about it and it was fun and we didn't even know if we were going to be able to pull from some of it but if you build all that out it makes it really easy to write <laughs> you know you're kind no, of like, sure, oh, well, that, that's, that's, we talked about this yeah I was going to say that's the that's the problem with any kind of new idea or where provenance isn't universally known because obviously if you were to decide to do a vampire movie we kind of you don't need to tell an audience how a vampire creates vampires yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and you don't need to yeah, say how yeah. zombies create zombies. It's like the movie rules have already been made. But but if you wanted to sort of bring something new, like a witch living through the ages and, and whatever the rules are that are attached to it, you've got to somehow show us how this works without the, un, you know, I mean, obviously the go-to is some, some books and yeah. some professors and all kinds of other things where suddenly we're like, and now for the exposition. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and we have a little bit of that. It was actually one of the things we most debated over in the edit. But mm. uh, we actually, something that, a bone that we have to pick with a lot of films currently that are horror movies, and I like these too, is everybody seems to firmly plant their horror movies like pre-cell phones and the internet because, you know, that makes things very easy because nobody can call somebody for help and you can't go online and kind of figure out what's going on, you know? <laughs> so, no, there is, the, I, have, I have watched so <clears throat> yeah. far... I think I've watched yeah. four films set in the early 90s that are at Fright Fest this yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, and nothing against that. I, I completely understand why they do it, but Drew and I were kind of like, hey, you know what I do is, like, when I can't get the pilot light on my stove to turn on, I go look on YouTube, how do I light my pilot yeah, light yeah, on yeah, my yeah, stove? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I go do it. So I was like, we have to address the fact that technology exists and the internet exists. So, you know, at some point in the movie, our character, when he starts finding things out about this, he goes online because what are you going to look at? You know, how are you going to research this? Exactly. He's not exactly. going to go to the library because kids don't go to the library. So he's going to go online and type things that just seem ridiculous and don't make any sense. And yeah, he'll find stuff. But the other thing I think filmmakers need to realize is the internet is full of a, fun, a bunch of BS and random information. So it can kind of work in this cool way of like, well, this doesn't mean it's totally true. It could be just some ridiculous website put on by some guy that lives in his basement and likes witches you know <laughs> no, so, no totally because yeah, i think i think yeah. the mistake that's made yeah. is a bit like it's a bit like um, the cinema the cinematic universe of hacking where 
somebody just starts typing fast and they can hack. It's almost like... Yeah. Whereas, and also, anybody that goes on the internet in a film is the equivalent of a PhD research student. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they know how to mine data. They know how to, and you're thinking, if I was a 16-year-old with access to Google, I'd, I'd have my ways of searching, but, you know, I wouldn't be... Yeah. I wouldn't know. I just click on the first thing, and that's the other thing that we all do with searching, isn't it? And again, like you say, that's the perfect way of misinforming and then taking the, the film in a direction that makes it even more tense and scary. Yeah, yeah, and it also tells you, like, do I take all this information I'm seeing or being fed? Is it true or is it BS? But it also, like, helps with, like, other characters in the movie because it kind of, like, if they know that's where the character is pulling the information from. It kind of discredits them. Mm. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I think, you know, we can embrace technology in horror films. It, yes. It creates this like story issue where you're kind of like, well, how do I put them in a dire situation? There's ways to do it. You know, there, there's ways to say like, I don't have my cell phone. It's not working or it's not helping me in this particular situation. It's, I'm just pro embracing it because I think it's it, we're, we're going to have to live with it forever, and we're not going to continually get to make movies that take place in the '80s. <laughs> you no, know? totally, totally. Well, look, yeah, let's yeah. let's let's tell people when they can see The Wretched. It is Monday, 26th of August. It's Prince Charles Cinema Discovery One, and it's at yep. one and it's at one p.m. Uh, are you yep. gonna, are you going to be in town? I'm going to be there. My brother's going to be there. My dad's going to be there, um, as well as. The uh, our actress uh, Madeline Stunkel, who actually plays the creature in the movie, she's coming out, and our composer. So. Brilliant. Well, look, it only gives yeah. me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. No, no, thank you, sir. This is great. The Brickflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.